Yeah, I think at the heart of personal development and therapy, the whole process is about us becoming more flexible, us becoming more psychologically flexible in the way we view everything. Because when we stay stuck, and in the book, I talk about automatic negative thoughts, otherwise known as ants. And I say they're just like the animal ants that when you stand on an ant's nest, they kind of bite you. Mental ants bite your psyche. And they are, you know, all or nothing. Like if this doesn't happen, then this will of course happen, like the worst situation or over predicting the future or, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that. Like the blame, the shame, being stuck and all these quite low vibrational energies or assuming that the past will predict the future. And the thing is, is that yes, the past influence where we are in the present, but there is a distinct moment of power we have in utilizing the present to change our future. And so flexible thinking is the desire to actually look into these stiff patterns that we may be aware or may not be aware of that we're stuck in. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. Today's episode, we explore how to unwire perfectionism with flexible thinking. So why do we need to think differently? How is our thinking styles now harming our health? We can set an illusion with ourselves that everything is fine with material success, but this illusion can come at a high cost to our mental health, resulting in low self-esteem, insecurity and anxiety. We are often most terrified of the thing that makes us the most human, the ability to feel. We've created our own patterns through learnt behaviours of how we should perform, think and feel. Yet the question I ask today is, is this pattern really making us happy? Poppy Jamie is one of the world's leading entrepreneurs on a mission to democratize conversation and tools for emotional and mental health. Poppy is the founder of the award-winning Happy Not Perfect app, Mindset, host of the chart-topping Not Perfect podcast and author of the Happy Not Perfect. And today we are going to explore how flexible thinking can help us stop worrying about the future, unwire perfectionism and free yourself from anxiety. Coffee, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. I was so excited about this chat. And obviously, we've known each other for a while now. So really, really happy to be here. So inspiring when you speak to somebody else in the mental health space, and you really have pioneered the mental health space before really mental health was on the surface of conversation. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today and also just talk about your amazing journey that you're currently on because you are also just finishing a post-grad and it's so inspiring just to hear your journey around this. So for all of our listeners, can you please just give us kind of a a short intro into how did you get into the world of mental health? Like, What was the draw? It was a personal experience that drew you in? So it was, but I guess it started at such a young age because my mother's a psychotherapist and before she was a psychotherapist, she was a physiotherapist. So when we were growing up, she would always say kind of 
all physical pain is mental pain because she would be treating her patients, you know, with all sorts and say, okay, so when did this bad back start? And when did this kind of like this rupture first happened, first happen? And the answers would always say, well, actually kind of came on during my divorce or kind of started happening with a big life event. My father actually suffered from chronic anxiety and depression. So we had this really unusual childhood whereby we saw my mum be this incredible, inquisitive, curious thinker way before her time, like 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when the world really wasn't ready to talk about this. She was a Reiki healer. So she would heal our animals, which again was so interesting. So obviously animals can't lie. So we would have the, we had this parrot. I mean, we did have, sounds like our house was totally mad, but it kind of was. I love the sound of your house. (laughs) (laughs) So you had this parrot that just wouldn't stop squawking. And I just remember so vividly, my mum would just like bring her hands, like, you know, I'm not sure if anyone has experienced Reiki healing, but it can be either contact or no contact, but she would bring her hands and gently place around them, around the parrot. And within a few seconds, the parrot completely relaxed, closed its eyes and went to sleep. And I thought to myself, wow, that to me was such a visible sign of what healing really is. You cannot see it, but yet it has such an impact. And so my father in some ways was very much my mother's experiment. You know, she got her meditating really early on and and just really the basics of looking after the mind because, you know, he was trying to run this business at the time and it was just anyone who runs their own business. And to be honest, honest, anyone who's, I mean, essentially everyone is running their own business, even if they're employed or not, because you're trying to run a life, you know, and we're trying to fit in everything that is included in a life. And so then when I kind of got to my early twenties, I had moved over to LA, I was TV presenting. And I think before then I had a lot of apparatus around me to keep me kind of feeling okay. So even if I was like, kind of would always be on the side of stressed and anxious as a teenager, I was very lucky to have kind of a format like a mum or whatever. And I had therapy at a really young age. I had these tools around me. And then when I got to LA, everything was not there. I had no structure in place and I had a complete and utter exhausted breakdown and ended up in hospital. And that was really when I had this kind of cold shower reality check of, wow, how did this happen? And in exploring how did this happen was really what led me onto this journey of how do I create tools to help other people look after their mind better. What did happen at that point? So it was a typical dose of kind of what broke the camel's back. So when I was looking back, it's so unsurprising it happened. I was hardly sleeping. I was pushing myself. I was a terrible people pleaser, perfectionist. Nothing was ever good enough. The enormous standards I placed on myself just to be better, to be more. And my brain was so negative that it would interpret every event or if something went wrong as total 100% evidence for my not good enoughness. It was like, oh, well, you know, I didn't get that job. Well, I must not be good enough or they must not like me. And if I did this, maybe they would. And obviously as we're in the media industry, so going to auditions and that was just, I mean, a whole load of just like negativity, one thing after the other. And so when you're like not living that healthily, mentally or physically, I 
just totally broke down. And it really was manifested in the stomach first. And I remember for a process of about two years, I was so like bloated. And my best friend would be like, wow, it does honestly look like you're like, you know, five months pregnant. And nothing would really fit because I just had this hard, rock hard, solid, like bloated tummy. And I think obviously that should have been more of a sign that I should be looking at that in a holistic way but the conversation really wasn't there it was like what 2015 like I just had you know a bloated tummy and so through wanting to kind of look after myself in more of a holistic way and not go on loads of drugs what really led me to this research that I thought I can't go over how this is not more accessible and also going to see specialists was so expensive. And they were kind of really telling me really basic things like, oh, I think you should go to sleep earlier to kind of stay away from like the hit exercises that is actually raising your cortisol more than it is actually helping you. And, you know, perhaps look at your diet and actually have you thought about meditation? I thought, this is mad how this is not accessible to everyone. And that's why then I created the Happy Not Perfect app with a neuroscientist at UCLA. Isn't it interesting how our own journeys really lead us to wanting to help more people to not get to that space? Because when you're talking about that, there's so much I relate of myself in my journey about obviously crashing, getting to that burnout phase, that high perfectionism, a judgmental industry, a lot of rejection. And I think you can have that in whatever industry you're in and you can completely dehumanize yourself and be not part of your body. And I think we have this huge attachment from our body to our brain. But actually, our brain is one of the leading causes of creating stress. And stress is one of the biggest impacts on disease that we have today. And so we actually need to start thinking about connecting it. And I guess that's exactly what you've started to create. So when we're talking about flexible thinking, because within the app, obviously, this was developed around mental health, but you've really kind of spiraled off into different areas. And one that you're very passionate about speaking about is flexible thinking. Can you describe what flexible thinking means to many people? Because I think, are we being flexible in our thinking day to day? Or is the daily life that we are living stopping us? Flexible thinking has been something I have been formulating for years and then most recently wrote about in depth in my book. And Really, it's a way to think that allows you to, oh, you have it. Oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> it's a way that allows you to think compassionately and consciously. And the reason I say that is because so often we think in a programmed way due to the way that the human brain has been wired. And we have so many, and I know the term, you know, human biases has come up in the last like two years, but the human bias that we all have, depending on the experiences that we've gone through, is so subtle and yet it controls the way our subconscious interprets our reality. There's these research studies that say things like, you know, 98% of our thoughts today were the same as yesterday. And the fact that we have a negative bias, that means that up to 70% of our thoughts are negative. And I mean, that's crazy to think that 98% of our thoughts today were the same as yesterday, but it also kind of makes sense because the brain is trying to predict and protect the entire time in attempt to keep us safe. And so I interviewed Dr. Rick Hansen, who wrote a book called Hardwiring Happiness, a neuroscientist, um, spiritual leader in many ways. And he told me that the human brain is not actually wired for happiness, but it's wired for survival. And I thought, God, it's so strange. We have this expectation 
expectation that we should be happy. And yet we're not really wired to be happy all the time. We're wired to constantly be looking out for danger. And obviously go back to historical times, that was really helpful. We had to look out for snake bites and poisonous berries. But now we have this oversensitive danger detection system that is then fueling our anxiety and our worries because we are on overdrive looking for anything that could, you know, affect our survival. And obviously before it was physical threats, but now they are psychological threats. So survival of ego is just as important as survival of actual self. And it's interesting because you write these books and then you kind of research even more. And in the book, I talk about, you know, how we have this, you know, inner critic, which I'm sure lots of people have heard of before, and it keeps us stiff. It's the opposite of being flexible because when we jump to assumptions, which we all do. We walk into an environment and we jump to an assumption of, am I safe? Or am I going to like that person? Or we jump to an assumption when we read an email, oh my God, that was so rude when they wrote that. Or, oh my God, does that mean this? In the process of jumping to assumptions, we miss so much. So the whole point of flexible thinking is for us to initiate a pause within our thinking. And flexible thinking is really the root of changing our innate thinking habits. And that is something that I thought was really underexplored. What does thought health look like? Healthy thoughts are flexible thoughts. They are thoughts that we enable ourselves to be able to look at and potentially change with more information. So rather than us being stuck in what we think, we actually live a life from a lens of curiosity, wanting to find out more. I think that's such a valuable lesson to learn, isn't it? Looking through life through different lenses and changing those lenses, switching them up. And somebody said that to me a while ago, we always seem to have one lens, but actually there can be six different lenses to our visions. And we need to actually take a breath and sometimes change those lenses and see what the outcome could look like. And I guess a really big thing that you're saying is actually to take a step and take a pause and maybe take a breath and reanalyze the situation, which I guess, especially for you, where you do fit yourself with a more perfectionism state can be really hard because your standards are so high. And so to kind of take a step back and actually look and along with that comes a lot of self-compassion. Is that how you feel works hand in hand with flexible thinking is giving yourself some self-compassion to actually take that breath and make a different judgment call?
And it, this kind of like leads into a term that psychologists call confirmation bias. Our brain likes to confirm everything we think is true because it makes us feel safe. It actually can be quite a dangerous habit as well as helpful because if you have a core belief developed from when you were very young that the world is unsafe, your brain is constantly trying to find evidence to confirm that. And more recently, I just have so much compassion, and this to your question is so important when you're looking at flexible thinking. Every single human has gone through small T trauma or big T trauma. There is no one out there who has gone through this life and hasn't been wounded in some way. And so when we're flexible, we can actually appreciate other people's wounding for leading them to think the way they do. And I think that something we're struggling with on a micro scale in our lives and also on a macro scale when it comes to like human societies is that we really struggle to hold two beliefs by the side of each other, even if they're opposing that whole thing of, you know, two truths can be true. The brain fight struggles so much to do that. And that's why we have arguments because arguments are just two brains desperately trying to feel safe. And when you sit that way, you're like, oh, if we had a bit more compassionate for everyone in an argument, we would actually understand maybe they want to be right, but what do they really need? Underneath the want is the need to feel safe. And that is the human instinct, isn't it? The need to feel safe. And I think so many times society can make us feel really unsafe. So how do you get into that safe mindset? Because I think, as you mentioned about the past, there's lots of patterns that can lead us to feel unsafe. And I guess past traumas and triggers, and it can be really hard and it can be really worrying to identify them, really a scary place. For you, what do you advise for people to take the steps to start feeling safe and actually identifying patterns that for them makes them feel triggered. I can go through the flexible thinking method in a moment because that definitely is one really research-backed way to feel safe. But the one thing I would say is before that is to normalize our triggers. And I definitely, this is why I just love this work. I love personal development work. I love therapy. I love group therapy. I love, because I think actually it's finding spaces you can be honest. So much of this world is about projecting a self that you want people to believe about yourself. And in so many scenarios, you know, that is helpful. And, you know, I can't deny that in a work setting, you probably do want to project your best self. But if you find yourself in friendship groups where you're also doing the same thing, then I think those are the environments that maybe you should consider reflecting on who are the people in my life that I can be so honest with. And you know, I have a bunch of friends who I'll call up and be like, I am feeling so angry. <laughs> and like, you know, just be expressive in the trigger because A, I find humor in it. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm feeling so angry about this. But also it just allows those moments of like, oh God, you know what? Something similar happened to me as well. In us just normalizing, it helps us to feel really safe because we begin to go, oh, this is okay. We give ourselves permission. And this is really, I think, kind of like 
the main reason for the book is, you know, I'm really honest with like all these situations that I went through is when you realize everyone else is just as weird as you, you're right. It brings a bit of humor into the situation and this work can feel heavy, but at the same time, when we realize that it's very normal for us to have these reactions, like if you've gone through a big event, it would be abnormal to be totally okay. So I think that has been really important for me in creating safety by verbalizing it to people who will A, either, you know, help create space or B, have a bit of a laugh about it. It's so true though, when you actually open yourself up, one, because I've been going through this recently, I think I've tried being more open and become more aligned with my values and my core values, which is something that you, you talk a lot about. And that's the importance of your true self. And it is a journey to get there because there's an acceptance and you're always worried about judgment, but you do feel that when one person opens up, so when you opened up to me earlier, I opened up back to you and was like, I went through something quite similar. And I'm reflecting my own journey from you giving that information to me. And it's quite funny until that one person makes that open call about themselves, that vulnerable side to them, the other person then feels, okay, I can now open up part of that that self to you as well. And it creates this interesting narrative. And so I find that really interesting about human behavior because we're all, I guess, living in this, what we want to see as perfect world on the outside. But on the inside, we're all struggling exactly the same, but we're always sometimes too afraid to say it and share it with the other person. But it does help create much more meaningful relationships, one with yourself, because it can feel quite freeing, but also with the other person. I couldn't agree more. And I think deep down, we're all dying for connection. You know, having had a pandemic where we were very disconnected, and then the fact that we live so much of our lives looking through the lens of social media, I think that more and more do we treasure those moments when, look, and again, I'm not encouraging everyone to drink, but when having a glass of wine with a friend being like, oh my God, this happened this week. And it's not complaining. I think there's such a nuance, right? It's not having being that friend who's like the Debbie Downer and always complaining. The greatest comedians, if you watch them, the reason why usually they're so funny is because they are admitting the truth that we're all scared of actually saying. And I was reflecting on that the other day. And so I think it's just this, you know, that authentic truth of this happened. And you're not even asking someone to therapize you. You're not asking someone to be like, well, you've got to look on the positive side. Because I think if you are doing this work, you know instinctively that you need to do X, Y, Z. And there's lots of tools that you can employ. And that's really important. But I think just getting into the habit of sharing the honest truth and not the perfected one. And to me, that was so important in my healing journey because I was so, so obsessed with trying to look like I had it all together. And in the book, and we were laughing about this when I spoke to you, but in the book, I talk about this thing called duck syndrome. I was a classic example of duck syndrome, where I was kind of like, just like ducks, you're trying so hard to look like you're gliding, but underneath the water, you're paddling for dear fucking life, praying that you're just going to be able to get through it. And yeah, so I try, try, try hard to try to break out of those patterns. And, and like with anything, none of us wake up in doing this work and are like, oh my God, I'm healed. You know, I've reached this kind of utopia of total personal development. And, you know, like I don't feel anxious anymore. It's really a process. And that's the whole point of flexible thinking is that it's a process that I wanted to share rather than a finished picture of like, and this is how you do it, guys. Like there is no manual to perfection. 
there is just a process that we can all employ to make lives feel a bit easier and a bit more enjoyable. I honestly believe that we all have the duck syndrome. I think (laughs) we always have this comparison to someone else and you always look at another person and think they've really got their shit together. (laughs) And then underneath it, they're just like falling apart. (laughs) Uh, I totally, I so think this, like there was a time when I was like having this on the surface, like super glam life, like traveling to LA and New York. And I was like, little did they realize that I was like, you know, exhausted. My like face was so puffy. I had spots, like I'd be calling my mum crying, like just on the surface, it just looked so dramatically different. And the thing is, is that we almost want the life that we want, we're projecting. Like God, her, like, you know, I'd look at these pictures being like, God, life looks great (laughs) oh my god it's so also not happening it's not and I think social media also is like you know one of the worst things for that now especially now we always have this social comparison to so many people and we're always thinking oh that person's life just looks completely blissful they're so successful they've got fantastic personal life they're smashing it in work life but actually underneath it (laughs) they're probably going home crying in their pjs with a cup of tea to their mum. i mean honestly it's true but we never project that do we yeah it's so true and i know this i'm still conscious of feeling like you know i have to obey social media in some way and it's an aesthetic platform and so you kind of like want these you know posts to look nice looking or whatever. I'm so aware of the dance we're all in. You know, I thought to myself, well, am I going to just be this anti-establishment person and just post like the worst photographs I can find? And I'm like, but that's also unnatural, right? So like, where does that nuanced balance sit? It's a really tricky thing with social media. I think it's a really tricky one to navigate. And I guess it's just trying to kind of show all the sides of yourself, isn't it? And we're definitely getting on to that while we talk about the different personalities that we all might have and how these can come up. But before we get on to that, which is part of your post-grad that I'm really excited to talk to you about, can we talk about the flex method? Because I know you've mentioned this a few times and I really want to get into this because it's based on the four C's, which seems like a really interesting four steps to take to making yourself feel a bit more safe and open up that flexible thinking process. So what are the four C's? The four C's are connection, curiosity, choice, and commitment. I'll quickly go through all four because they are a practice that you can do in the moment, or they're a practice that you can just consciously take yourself through each day. And I like to do it in the morning, for example, because our brain is very much like a muscle. So we have to train it in the way that we want it to work automatically. And going back to what keeps us stiff is when we don't exercise our brain in a way that is empowering us and we stay stuck in these old patterns and like live an unconscious life. Step one, connection, is all about being conscious of connecting with your body before you do anything. Let's say I received, I'll give an example of this morning, okay? I received this hyper like triggering email from an old, like someone I used to work with. And I so wanted to fire back an email with all of these thoughts and, you know, my, the hurt self within me replying and I had to go, okay, flex poppy. Step one connection. Am I connected to my body? Because the problem is when we are emotional, the emotional side of the brain is activated. We become totally disconnected from our body and it's within our body 
where our wisdom lies. And that's why often you're much better advising a friend than you are yourself when you're in an emotionally charged moment. So connection is literally like, am I connected to my body? And the easiest way to connect to your body is to move your body. And again, I heard this great quote and it resonates so much, which is, you know, it's very difficult to think your way out of a problem, much easier to move your way out of a problem. And you may relate to this, you know, you're stressed out, you receive an email, you're on your desk and you can't think your way out of that moment of feeling stressed. But actually, if you get up, go for a walk for 20 minutes or in the book, I talk about flexercises, like you relax your shoulders, you start breathing into the belly, you do a power pose, you shake your hands out. Even just that tiny connection enables you to slow down the emotional center and start activating the computer side. And another way to do this is through the diffusion technique by creating some disidentification. And this is from acceptance commitment therapy. And you say a sentence like, today, my mind feels. And just by saying that, you're reminding yourself, today, my emotions are temporary. They may not be with me tomorrow. My mind, you are not your mind. You know, if you can observe your mind, you are not your mind. Your soul is just awareness, the awareness of your mind. And then you label the emotion. And a study at UCLA University found participants who were able to label an emotion actually saw a reduction in activity in the emotional center of the brain. So science has proven that just by labeling, that's why I like to call a friend and say, you know, I just feel like this today. And it's actually a way for me to reduce my reactivity by labeling how I feel. So you can either journal it if you don't have someone who wants to listen to you rant, or you can, as I said, speak to someone you trust. So important. Funny enough, if you label your feelings, which I do a lot when I feel overwhelmed, you see how that can predict a behavior. And I think that's really important to analyze. That's only a thought and a feeling, and it predicts a specific type of behavior and a reaction. And so seeing that is so important. And this is why then it becomes like a circuit breaker, because when we feel, then we do. But when we feel, and we go, hold on a minute, I'm just going to pause and take awareness of this feeling, we then start to create choice. And we're going to come onto that. But we don't create choice if we stay stuck reacting. And so connection is really about connecting for a pause. And I have this amazing spiritual teacher that would always say to me, Poppy, pause, what a pleasure. Pause, what a pleasure. And you're right. And Viktor Frankl, he was a great inspiration for my book, who is the author of Man's Search for Meaning. And he was a psychologist in the concentration camps. And he wrote this amazing quote saying, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space and within that space is our power and our freedom. Because within the space of stimulus, triggered and response is where we have that ability to become aware and then to choose our next step. So this then moves me on to the second part of the flex, which is curiosity. And curiosity is the greatest friend in dismantling stiff beliefs and stiff reactions. Because when we jump to an assumption, we miss out so much information that could be available to us, but we are so insistent on wanting to believe something about that situation. And usually this stems from a historical belief system that we've inherited in some way or absorbed. So curiosity says, hmm, before I respond, I want to find out more. And in that investigative mindset, I call it kind of Sherlocking your thoughts, 
you ask yourself, is this true? And then another inspiration for this step was through the work of Byron Katie. And she has, she's amazing. She's in her seventies. Her book is called The Work and she has lots of other books, but she always asks the question, is this true? Is this thought true? Is this thought true that everybody hates me because I did this thing wrong? Is this true? And suddenly you go, well, can you be a hundred percent sure it's true? Well, I can't, if I can't be a hundred percent sure. And then you ask the question, how does this thought make me feel? Well, I feel really insecure. I feel low. Who would I be without this thought? Well, I'd be fine. I'd be back to normal. And suddenly you realize, ah, oh, the root of our suffering is within our thoughts that we don't even know is true. So curiosity is a huge second step. And the third step is choice. And that is the fact that our freedom is all about recognizing the choice we have in any given situation and how we respond. And are we going to respond with either compassion for ourselves, first and foremost, or compassion and compassion for another person or compassion for a situation? And I often think, you know, there's this quote that would like used to go around social media about, oh, you've got a choice to be happy. I actually don't really believe that's true. Often we don't have the choice to be happy. You know, sometimes life really does throw a shit sandwich at you. And that's not a time to enforce toxic positivity or toxic happiness of like, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Actually, you're not fine. And not being fine is where the healing happens. But can we be kind? We always have a choice to be kind. That often is activated through very simple questions, which I'm sure other people on the podcast have spoken about with stuff like, if I could advise a friend experiencing what I am now, what would that be? And often I ask people, you know, what would you advise a friend experiencing what you are now in your personal life? What would you advise a friend experiencing what you are now in your work life? The reason why this simple question is so interesting and powerful is because it actually activates a different part of the brain. When we think to ourselves, oh my God, what do I need to do now on this? It's actually coming from the emotional side of the brain. When we think about another's problems, it activates the problem-solving part of the brain. So just by asking that question, you start to use a different part of your brain to fix your own problems. And that's when I was like, oh my God, that makes total sense as to why we're great at advising other people, but not necessarily ourselves. That reminds me a little bit of neuro-logistic programming. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's when you associate yourself out of your body. So you imagine the scenario and then you try to detach yourself. So you kind of bring yourself out of your body and then you bring yourself out of your body again. So you're looking at yourself and then you're looking at yourself, looking onto yourself. And so the more that you step out of your body and you're taking a wider perspective of the situation, the more, I guess, it's the same way of what would you say to a friend or what would you say to a work colleague in that situation? It can really take you out of that, as you said, stiff, rigid mindset of, I guess it's the fight or flight response of the, when something happens, it's like, do you fight or do you flee? And it's an immediate kind of cortisol response to be like, what do I do now to save myself? I think it's a really powerful step. Absolutely. Same mechanism. And then step four is commitment. And that's really, how do we commit to our actions in the present being aligned with our values for the future. And this step is so important. So for example, at the moment, I'm in the process of setting up something new. And so we actually created, you know, five values for the company. And you can do this just for yourself. Because if you have your like top five values, every decision, it honestly makes decision making so 
much easier. And especially if you're someone who has kind of paralysis by analysis of like, do I do this or do I do that? Or what do I think about And I very much have that. So by having like, and I print out my values, like have five of them on my pin board in front of, especially in front of my desk or I have them on my phone. And so when I'm wondering like, oh, should I do this or should I do that? Or what is my next step forward? Or how should I respond to that? Look at my values being like, right, what decision would best reflect them? And suddenly, if you start making small, tiny decisions, all in alignment with the future values that you want your life to be about, suddenly, miraculously, it starts to unfold in the way you want. And the reason why that kind of, you know, quote that's often attached to Einstein, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result, is because we are hardwired to get stuck in past patterns because, again, the brain doesn't like unfamiliar territory. The brain likes to stay with the familiar, even if the familiar is hurtful, even if the familiar means toxic relationships, even if the familiar means, you know, like self-hating, self-blaming, self-shaming thoughts. Back to my first point, flexible thinking is about conscious thinking of where we want to go and how we want to construct our future that can be different from where we've been. It really does apply, doesn't it, to all areas of of life, even relationships, as you just mentioned then like writing down your values. And we did a really interesting podcast two weeks ago that will be out when people listen to this. And it was about relationships. And the core kind of value of that was understanding your values because that will then help define a healthy, secured, attached relationship. And I do think it can be really hard to find one's core values. I mean, it sounds really simple, doesn't it? It's kind of like, what are your values? But actually, many people listen to this, but we say to them, think of five values that are important to you right now. I think some people might, struggle with that concept. How can we get to knowing what they are? So great question. So in the book, I talk about this thing called flexi mentors. And this was very much taught to me by Polly Bateman, who's an amazing coach. And so her exercise to me was, and maybe you'd like to do this now. She said, okay, think of three people you really admire. So would you like to do this now, Sarah? Yeah. So think of three people you really admire. Yeah. Okay. Let's pick one of them. What values do you think that person has had in order to be where they are or doing what they're doing right now? I would say determination. Okay, great. Any more? Kindness. Okay, any more? I would say that they're very curious. Great. Okay, the second one. What would you say, what values have they shown to be true? It's kindness. Yeah. Determination. Yeah. Vulnerability. That's a big one. I do find it quite hard to name emotions. Is there something about them that you go, God, it's so cool that they do this or like the way they hold themselves in a room? For example, one of mine walks into a room and she immediately like makes you feel so seen. That's one of my values. And I should tell you who it is. It's Charlotte Tilbury. Because every time she walks into a room, she's just like, ball of energy and like literally when she's like hi Poppy I'm like hi Charlotte (laughs) yeah you're right it's openness I guess which is quite similar to her she's very open but this person is very open I think I find that vulnerability and openness a really inspiring energy to be around because I think so many times you can meet people with their boundaries up but I think I'm definitely one of those people although I feel like I am very open I think you are always scared about being judged or people's judgment onto you. So as much as you feel that you could be being open, how open really are you? How true are you 
in these situations because there's this worry that you know actually do you still have your boundaries up you might feel that you're being over are you and I think that's a really important question to ask and this person that I'm thinking of actually is a very open person whatever scenario they are in whether it's a one-on-one or in a new situation with new people they are actually very comfortable within oneself and I think that's a inspiring person to be around So this is really interesting. So suddenly, just through just reflecting on people that you admire, you start to go, oh, hold on a minute. Maybe they've got values that I actually didn't think was really important to me. But actually, all the people I really admire all kind of have similar things that clearly they live their life by. So just by, you know, writing those things down, then with these different opportunities that life presents you with, whether it be social or work or family, you can think, oh, does this align with the person and the values that I want to emulate? It's so subtle. What I love about it, it's not a destination, right? These values are constantly emerging within us and they constantly, like we can practice them. And it's just, it's a, we're creating our own philosophy to live our lives by. And what I love about it is that everyone's is different. And what I also lastly love about it is that you cannot admire someone else's values without already having it a bit inside of you. You cannot acknowledge another person's light without that light within you because that's confirmation bias. We recognize things that feel actually familiar to us because we hold far more of it within ourselves and we probably give ourselves credit for. That's a really nice way to think about it actually. So you're actually driving that more within yourself. What are your five values? Can I ask? So curiosity, enthusiasm, passion, empathy, thoughtfulness, and authenticity. Oh, that's a great one. And I suddenly thought, you know, because again, like sometimes I really regret sometimes being a bit too honest. Like my godparents were at my house over the weekend. They're like, oh, you know, like how's the last like few months been? And I was like, oh, well, you know, they haven't been great, to be honest. Because, And I suddenly thought, it sounds so ridiculous to like, want to impress your godparents. But like, there was a part of me that kind of wanted to be like, and this is happening at work, and this is happening, and, th- and you know. And, and I just was like, oh, well, yeah, I'm not too sure about this. And I was a bit in a transition period, and like, that didn't go so, you know. And then afterwards, I was kind of like kicking myself. And then I thought, you know what? No, at least you were honest about your last, rather than put on a show. So I do try to practice them. But as I said, like the whole thing, happy, not perfect. None of us are perfect. None of us can live our values 100% of the time. That's often because our survival instinct gets in the way. And that's when a huge dose of self-compassion is needed with all of this. I honestly think that you being honest is so important because one, not only are you being honest with yourself and you're not masking the fact that actually you have had maybe a couple of hard months you're actually letting people around you know that right now I'm finding life a bit tough, a bit shit. It's a bit confusing. I don't really know what's going on. And it allows those people to have a bit more empathy for you. Or in these times when I've gone through that, and I've definitely gone through that recently, you also realize that people can help you. Like there might be areas where people can actually help you, whether it's like helping you with what you might be struggling with or whatever that is. But when we shut ourselves off to that, we actually shut ourselves off to all these other experiences that could come our way. And I think that's actually really important to recognize. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And, you know, and also you've got no idea what really is happening for the other person. 
And that's, you know, that beautiful kind of like old Greek quote of be kind to everyone, you know, everyone's facing their own battles. I mean, totally butchered that, but I'm sure everyone knows which one I'm talking about. And I think that was the biggest realization with perfectionism. What fueled my perfectionism is this kind of quite childlike belief thinking, well, everybody will like me if I'm perfect. Like I'll have so many friends if I'm perfect, you know, no one will ever break up with me if I'm perfect. And you know, actually it's really our imperfection that kind of like helps us all to feel human, helps everyone to feel comfortable and actually probably like you more. Perfectionism is very weird how that plays out in making us think the other way. God, you know what? It's very true that because I think when you, and I'm going to go back to social media because I guess it's the easiest kind of observation here I can make, but when you see people being more real on social media, you actually have a more deeper connection because you're like, oh, they're quite similar to me. <laughs> but when everyone is so perfect, you really do have a bit of a detachment. You're kind of like, is this real? Is this person real? Is this how they really live their life every day? And then it can also make you feel quite deflated about yourself. So I think actually, you know, those imperfections are the biggest human connection. Yeah, big time. Because I know that obviously you've got a next stage of where you're going now. And something I've loved hearing when I speak to you this week was that you're just about to finish a postgrad, which I just think is so flipping inspiring. And your postgrad has been on psychosynthesis. Can you first of all explain to everyone who's maybe never heard of this term before what psychosynthesis is? Because this all does really kind of follow on from everything we've been speaking about today. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so psychosynthesis was created by a psychologist called Roberto Assagioli. And he was a stu student of Freud and realized that the Freudian psychoanalysis model was really limited. It felt like it missed out so much of actually what creates the psyche. Because yes, it is incredibly important to create awareness around the historical influences that have formed the way our brains work. But equally, we have a supraconscious, and this is really unique to psychosynthesis, and your supraconscious is your hopes, wishes, and dreams, and your ability to make a choice and will to make things different. Because not all of us, yes, the past may influence us, but we don't need to be stuck by the past. The neuroplasticity, the fact that the brain is plastic, demonstrates that we all have the ability to change our brain. And psychosynthesis, way before any of these scientific discoveries in neuroplasticity were even made, identified that and also took into account the transpersonal psychology. We are relational beings. You may be having a great day and then you meet up with someone and suddenly they say these things, X, Y, Z, or in a terrible mood, and you leave feeling terrible. Now, is that your psychology or actually the space in between you and another and like how that affected you? And so I think it's really important, like, for example, you know, relationships, case in point, if the relationship isn't going well, that can have a massive impact on how you're feeling. Again, it's the space between people that is just important to recognizing and create awareness around and also have awareness of, and this was kind of slightly identified by Freud, but again, really brought in by Roberta Sajoli, this idea of counter-transference and transference. What is projection from another person and what is counter-transference, which is like, how are we interpreting someone else in a way that is colored by our experiences? And in psychosynthesis, it's, I mean, I have to say, I really encourage anyone to seek out psychosynthesis coaching and psychosynthesis therapy, because 
I find it's such an inspiring and such a kind of forward thinking psychology in enabling people to understand themselves in a completely different way. And, you know, the ancient Greeks used this quote, you know, know thyself. And so psychosynthesis is around helping you identify all these different parts of yourself from the different parts that created your past and also all these beautiful, like, hopes, wishes, and dreams in order for you to have this real understanding of your whole psyche and how that works in the world. I'm trying to think of the next question to lead on from that. There is so much in what you've just said around oneself. And I think understanding how other people can change our energy and our emotions quite quickly is really, really important. Because as you said, that email this morning that you got probably automatically changed how you felt. And now that could have a negative impact for the rest of your day. Or you could see a friend and it could completely change your energy by lifting you back up again. And I guess this kind of brings it into looking at different sub-personalities and understanding that we all may not just have this one labeled personality about ourselves, which I think we can easily put ourselves in. One person might think, oh, I'm really extroverted. So, you know, I've always got to play into this really extroverted person of myself, or I'm more introverted. So actually I can kind of detach from situations because people know that that I feel really uncomfortable in these, but actually you could be both. And I think you spoke to me about this earlier around the different sub-personalities and, and accepting that of oneself. Can you maybe go a little bit deeper into that and allow people to kind of actually understand different personalities of themselves and feel happy in that. So a part of psychosynthesis therapy is using the tool of subpersonalities for you, for us to stretch our perspective, our awareness and understand, you know, like how our brain works. So a subpersonality is a part of ourself. So for example, and let's just take this example when I got this like triggering email and I so wanted to like respond with like X, Y, Z, this is why I'm feeling upset. Now, a psychosynthesis coach would be like, well, what part of you was activated in that moment? And it was kind of like the protector part of me. It was like the slightly aggressor part of me. But equally, I have another part, which is, you know, what part was actually that protecting? It was actually protecting a more fearful part of me that's more sensitive of, oh, that's sad, that relationship may have been like, that may not be continuing or actually like, this makes me feel a bit fearful because of X. And so what we realize is that we've got different parts of ourselves that protect others. And through visualization, you can really understand what these parts want when they activate a behavior. So for example, I don't have a short temper, but if someone did, you know, actually it's protecting a much more sensitive part of them within that maybe they've never really truly accessed, never really truly had a conversation with that part. Psychosynthesis kind of stands for psychology of the soul. And what we realize is that these personalities have been created to protect our soul. And so it's about creating harmony for all the parts that have created us. I, for example, have a perfectionist part. And the perfectionist part, what they want is perfection. But what that perfectionist part really needs is acceptance. Acceptance for however they do. And that's really interesting. So again, another thing within psychosynthesis is differentiating what we think we want to actually what we truly need. Even romantic partners, we want them to be like this, but do we truly need them to be like that? Or actually, what are we really like inside? What we really like are craving? And when you understand your subpersonalities, 
you know, for example, like even with this postgraduate essay, like this dissertation I'm writing, there's a part of me, again, the perfectionist part that's like, that stands up and going, no, no, you must work harder. You must work harder at this. This has to be better. Like, God forbid they think that you're not a very good writer after you've written a book. Like, that would be awful. And there's another part of me that's just like, I'm tired. Just submit it as it is. I'm sure it's okay. And so our sub-personalities are constantly having conversations with each other. So that's why it's like a beautiful practice that creates so much, I can't tell you, so much inner peace. So yeah, hopefully that has given an understanding. And there's other therapies like internal family systems that Gabby Bernstein writes about in her new book. She was recently talking about that to me on my podcast. So I definitely think this is a new emerging therapy that I think a lot of people haven't experienced before will find great solace in. How would people go around finding that this type of therapy? Because I think that can be such a minefield for so many people. If you go through kind of Psychosynthesis Institute, like Psychosynthesis, if you try to type in Psychosynthesis Therapists, there'll be loads of different resources on the internet. Internal Family Systems, there is a book about it. But again, if you type in Internal Family Systems Therapists, what you'll discover is these personalities that really were created when you were very small, when you're like three years old, five years old, seven years old, different parts of us that were developed at different ages in order to protect us in different ways. Whole part of it's like when you synthesize it, it's not about erasing parts. It's about having compassion for all parts and helping them work together in keeping you safe and keeping you feeling in the best space possible. It goes a bit deeper, which is really exploring the shadow parts, which parts of ourselves have we exiled. So for me, like I gave up tennis because I hated the competitive part of me that came out when I played it. And I remember just like being like, oh, that's such an ugly, ugly side to me. I never want to play tennis again. So it was like me exiling this like shadow part. And actually, what gift did that kind of slightly competitive part have within me? Well, it enabled me to survive building two companies in a world of men that weren't so great. So again, it's about even welcoming back the parts of ourselves that we may have thought were shameful or not appropriate and recognizing that they did have value and they are supporting us in different ways. I really feel like compassion is such a leading thread throughout all of this, isn't it? And how that can be so suppressed by shame. And it is a really, really scary, I guess, realization when we live in a world of shame and fear about how we are projected or the parts of us that we don't want to show. But as you said, those parts can also have a really positive impact on your life. And that survival part of the competitive part of you got to you to, to where you are today in your journey and actually navigating this really interesting field in mental health. And as you said, creating two companies. So it is really important. I think, as you said, you know, you flipped it on the head there and that is just unflexible thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Hurrah! Thank God. I know. Sometimes I'm like, yes, it worked. <laughs> I feel like we've just gone through the flex method in your analyzation there. That's what we did. I mean, I, what a better way to end the podcast. I always love to ask though, before you leave, and I'm really interested in this answer actually pops. What does live well, be well mean to you? That's such a good question. I think living in alignment with our truth, because as long as we are living true to ourselves, we're all so deeply, wonderfully unique. Like no one else has a better journey because you're on your journey for yourself. So it allows, I think, for great peace and surrender when the journey feels less to the times when it feels clearer. So yeah, live well, be well is definitely 
living closely in alignment with your true self. I love that. I hope we've all got our five core values after this. I feel like I've got mine now. Oh, good. Good. It's really helpful. <laughs> it's really helpful for decision making. I have to say it really cuts that like time really helps you be more efficient. No, absolutely. It really does. It's funny enough. Somebody told me to do this about four weeks ago with the transition that we're going on at the moment. And it does. It helps you bring back to kind of your core beliefs of, is this what I truly believe? And is this the way I want to go? Because sometimes with opportunities that can seem really exciting, it doesn't always mean that they're the best options to take. So thank you so much for sharing that valuable piece of information. And I love being true to yourself and I guess surrendering and being open is something that we're all on a forever journey. And I guess we mentioned this before, it's always works in progress. Yeah. It's a constant work in progress, isn't it? Yeah, a constant. Like this idea that we can just click our fingers and this, you know, like magical dream life. I've met many like successful people and no one's just said, oh, I just put it on my vision board and it happened. Like it's always been like some crazy journey of ups and downs and just returning to self when we get pulled away from it. So we're all, we're all whips. Have you seen that Bernie Brown talk on shame where she talks about being in the arena? Yes. Yes. I love that book. She quotes Roosevelt, I think. That's who she quotes around being in the arena and you cannot judge unless you're in that arena. And she said something at a TEDx conference where she said, everyone at TED is a failure. They're on the stage because they failed many times. Now they succeeded. But I think it's really important to actually understand that the failures aren't really failures. They're a growth towards the next stage. And I think that's something to be quite inspired by. Yeah, definitely. In the book, I call them growth nuggets like failures are growth nuggets because they're like little, it's like on a video game when you were little or something, you're playing these video games and like the little thing kind of like eats these little nuggets to get <laughs> further. Try to see them as that. <laughs> That's a great view. Every time I think of a video game, I just think of lemmings. Don't know if you've ever played them. All I could think of is the little lemmings coming down and trying to get through the floor. <laughs> That's all I've got in my head. Before we go, I mean, obviously I am obsessed with your book, Happy Not Perfect, but can you tell everyone where they can obviously download the book? Is it on Audible and where they can find you and more information? Yes. So the book is on Audible. You can listen to it and it's at every other major bookstore where you find your books and it's online and you can find me on social media and there's links to the book there, just at Poppy Jamie. And always love to hear from anyone who's done any of the flex steps. Just please message me and let me know how that went for you and what you found out. Absolutely. And do definitely follow your social media account because it is one of those really inspiring accounts. And, I, and you mentioned about the movement quote and you have that on your, a really great one of you dancing in your room or in your lounge of saying, you know, actually move out of that trigger or that pain that you're in right now. And I think actually it's really nice when I see your posts pop up because it kind of can take me out of that headspace. I think it's a really, a really fantastic account to follow. Oh, that's really kind. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for your amazing, thoughtful questions. Really appreciate them. I absolutely love them. Thank you so much for coming on to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. Thank you, Poppy, for coming on, sharing your story and giving us fantastic tools to help navigate stiff thinking into flexible thinking. I'd really encourage you guys to go and think of your five core values that are really important to you and pin them on your mirror, on your fridge or on your door. If you did enjoy the podcast, please do give us a five-star review 
on Apple or on Spotify. It really helps spread the word of this podcast and deliver the information to more people. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.